I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is Azadeh Moaveni, the author of Guest House for Young Widows, who teaches at New York University. She has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the protests in Iran following the death of Masa Amini on the 16th of September. Hello, Azadeh, and thank you very much for joining me again. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with you. So I suppose to begin and just to tell us who Masa Amini was and how she died. Masa Amini was a young woman, 22, from the Kurdish region of Iran, the town of Sarqaz. She had graduated from high school and had been admitted to university. She was visiting Tehran with her brother the day that she was detained by the morality police at a metro stop. Her appearance on the day that she was detained from pictures we see was quite unremarkable. She didn't look to be um, sort of dressed in any way out of the ordinary. She was stopped by morality police at a metro station. Because of everything that's happened in the aftermath of, of her death, because she did die in the custody of the police and it, and it emerged that she was of Kurdish origin, some people seem to wonder whether she was targeted because she was Kurdish. Not at all. I mean, it wouldn't have been obvious looking at her that she's of that, of that ethnic background. Um, Iran has so many ethnic backgrounds. Um, she was simply targeted by the, the morality police because they patrol metro stations. And so she could have been from anywhere, but she happened to be Kurdish um, and background. And she was detained by the police, and she died uh, within about 48 hours of that detention. Um, images of her at the hospital were released by her family. There were journalists at the hospital. She's entubed. She looks entirely pale, uh, and she died. The authorities have claimed that she had pre-existing medical conditions and that, and that something was um, that something sort of existingly wrong with her was triggered by her detention. But clearly, she was healthy when she was picked up by the police, and something happened to her while she was being transported or while she was in their custody. Uh, there is some footage of her in the room where she's been interrogated, and she appears to just collapse onto the table. So there's speculation that perhaps she had been beaten in, in the car or in the van on the way there. Um, so she was simply a young woman, like so many uh, of Iran's very young population, heading to university like so many young women do. And she fell into the hands of this morality policing force. And that ensnarement ended up killing her. And the process that erupted, if that's the word, is that because of the images that spread on social media? How, how was the news disseminated? The news spread exactly on social media very quickly that this young woman uh, had been picked up by the morality police and that she had died in their custody. And the images that were most spread and that I remember the first one that I saw was of her in the hospital uh, with the tubes in her mouth and, and looking like she, you know, she, perhaps she had died already at that point. This was a very shocking incident. Uh, morality policing is a feature of Iranian life, but I can certainly not recall in, in recent memory, years, decades, that a young woman would, would die in morality police custody. So the first protests were sparked or erupted in her hometown area in the Kurdish region. So in her town of Sarqez and then in other towns in, in that region of Iran. And then they spread very quickly. They began with the sort of rallying cry of, woman, life, freedom. 
which has its origin in the Kurdish feminist movement, a sort of transnational, I think we could say, Kurdish feminist movement. But it resonated so profoundly across the rest of Iranian society and spread so quickly because I think something like, you know, 80 to 90 percent of young Iranians are on social media and saw the news immediately. And then it sparked. And then suddenly within you know, 24 hours, they were across the whole country in big cities and smaller towns. Um, it was quite extraordinary the way that they spread everywhere, almost instantly. And of course, that slogan that her official name was Marsa, but her Kurdish name was Gina, is that right? And, which means life. Which means life, yes. Um, so in Kurdish, yes, Zan, Jan, uh, Azadi. Uh, and, and that was her Kurdish name. The origins of that word are, are actually Persian, John. So it's the same word uh, in Persian, and it's the same word in Urdu, and it's a word that, you know, uh, so many cultures next to Iran recognize as well. Um, and, and I think it's it's really resonated in, in a particular way. And it's also such a, it's such a broad slogan, freedom, life, somehow the breadth of it. I believe was part of how it spread so quickly to sort of pick up so many more grievances beyond simply policing of women's bodies and and women's discrimination and their status under the Islamic Republic under you know Muslim majority patriarchy it spread very quickly to to be about so many other things though I think the feminist spirit of these protests is is still very much at the forefront of them. But I think quickly it began to be about much else. I think we can compare it to Bouazizi, the fruit seller in Tunisia, who burnt himself, who self-immolated because the police stopped him and wanted to fine him. You know, he had a fruit cart. And that spark of humiliation, the humiliation of a young woman being killed, a beautiful young woman, you know, at, at the outset of her life, a humiliation that then seized people who saw in what had happened to her, in the grief of her family, in the loss of her future, I think resonance in what they too feel broadly, what so much of Iranian society feels is blighted in their lives, economically, politically, culturally. You know, it sort of happened at, at such a bleak despairing moment for Iran. And I think it was just the, the humiliation of the spark of her death. And that event in the fruit cellar in Tunisia was what, in 2011, that led to the Arab Spring across the entire Arab world. But the, the protests in Iran, they have no leaders, right? They're leaderless, but there does seem to be unity of purpose. They are leaderless. Uh, this is a big debate if they have unity of purpose. They definitely seem to have dominant sentiments, and those sentiments are very clear. They are angry, insulting, rejecting sentiments against the whole of the theocratic system. I think that's quite fundamental and hard to ignore. There's a rejection of theocracy, a sort of fundamental disavowal of, of the system of, of Iran's government. Um, run, you know, at the top by a cleric um, that rings through across them, along with, you know, many other other strands of, of anger um, about shame and honor and, 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 you know, desires for accountability. But purpose, I think, is, is a tricky one because while people are expressing that they don't want theocracy anymore— they have not gone further. There has been no articulation of how. You know, shall it be through a process where the authorities in Iran are confronted with a challenge to their rule so destabilizing that they back down, that there is a trigger of some sort of um, political maneuvering within the elite? You know, the the question of the political succession of the country's supreme leader looms across all of this. You know, before even, you know, these protests around Masa Amini's death, there have been big questions about what the future of Iran will look like after 
Supreme Leader Khamenei dies? Will this system of rule by a jurisprudent, by a cleric, and in Persian it's called velayate faqih, it's a system that the Ayatollah Khomeini essentially created himself for himself, and it really has deadlocked Iran politically because it affords and constitutionally sort of enacts elections and gives people uh, a voice, a direct voice in electing their government. But at the top, it has a figurehead who's accountable to God. So will these protests induce the system and the elite in order to simply preserve themselves to to respond to people's demands, to move away from theocracy after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, and I think that's something that's, that's discussed very openly. You know, would that be enough for these protesters? Do they just not want theocracy anymore? And would that kind of internal, you know, could we call it reform? I don't know if we end up with something that is outwardly more secular, but is still very authoritarian, that resembles something like Egypt under Sisi. Is that progress? Would that content people? So I think it's very bound up, you know, uh, also the path to what the protesters want is so undefined and what they're also willing to countenance. You know, will they countenance uh, support, interference, you know, how, how would they view it from Iran's opponents? Do they want Saudi Arabia, Israel to be helping them overthrow the government? You know, do they see those forces as potentially more liberal, bringing forward a more liberal order in Iran than what we have now. Um, so, you know, the sentiment is overwhelmingly clear, but the method and the path to what the protesters want and, and, and the fact that I think they are so few in number right now. I mean, I think until we have several hundred thousand people in the street, until we have one million, two people in the street, I think we're also not at that cataclysmic revolutionary moment yet at all. So what does everyone who's still staying at home but feel solidarity, what do they want? And what will they be willing to, you know, what would lure them out onto the street? These are questions that I think we don't know the answers to yet. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> a lot to unpick there. But I mean, in, in, one, in one sense, I mean, I suppose the process appear to have achieved one goal and that women are out in public in Iran in large numbers with their hair uncovered. So in that sense, I mean, have that, have that those laws which require women to cover their hair, do they de facto no longer apply? That is what I believe. I mean, they have de facto already applied in parts of Iran for years now. You know, in, in more well-to-do neighborhoods and in, in wealthy parts of Tehran in the country, people who are sort of financially or politically buffered through, you know, connection to the regime or simply their wealth have, have been able to live very freely of these rules. You know, uh, before the Trump administration pulled out of the nuclear deal, there was this burgeoning in Tehran of rooftop restaurants and the sort of secular sort of Dubai sort of places where the sort of massive influx of tourism that was meant to come to Iran, all these places were built. So I remember sort of going to them a couple of years ago when when they were empty and when those crowds never came. Um, but wealthy Iranians were there. And it was, it was just extraordinary seeing these bubbles uh, in Tehran where, where women were at restaurants with their hair uncovered, being served by waitresses with their hair uncovered, you know, with television on, with women with hair uncovered. But this did not extend beyond these elite circles. So now I think that fearlessness or that sense of being able to flout those laws and live freely as a woman is, I can see no way of going back. You know, I see young girls in the family so confident Walking around Tehran when I was there last month, um, parts of the city where you wouldn't, you know, you would not walk around certain parts of the city with your hair uncovered. It was just too nervous making. And there were young women just walking, walking down, you know, these main arteries of Tehran, you know, the streets where the revolution unfolded in 1979. And it was just incredible to see that. And I don't see that that can go back. You know, seeing these schoolgirls uh, rip off these, these kind of hoods they have to wear as part of their school uniform, that kind of fear, and then the sort of very, I guess, this kind of diaphanous 
sort of film between public and private is just torn now. And and I think that in its own way is is a victory. I think it's a sort of secularization of, of life that women wanted. Um, and that's happened. And did you feel able to not cover your hair when you were there or did you? Um, so I, I'm of a more fearful generation. <laughs> um, there were parts of the city where I didn't cover my hair. Um, and those are the parts of the city where I have also not covered my hair for a long time now. Um, or I've worn uh, a bandana or I've worn a headband or I've worn a baseball cap. You can do all of these things. And that kind of counts as, as covering your hair. In the more policed and central areas of the city, I, I did not. And I really wanted to. And I remember looking at the girls, the young women who walked past me, and I just looked at them and I thought, how, you know, so for like a second I would pull it down and then I would sort of pull it back up. And I thought, you know, she's 20. How does she have, how is she so much more brave than me? And I thought, you know, I don't know. I have two children. Um, I don't want to land in detention for a week or a month. And and maybe that's the bravery of, of young women. You know, they feel like they have their whole lives ahead of them and they have so much to, to fight for and so much um, indignation. You know, and I remember feeling that way when I was in Iran 20 years ago or longer a little bit when I was their age. And I was very rebellious then. And I got caught many times and spent the night in police stations and was humiliated and shouted at. Um, and I didn't mind at all because it was, you know, the, you know, to, to comply was unthinkable. Um, but so much has changed since then. You know, I'm content as a, you know, as a parent to wear a tunic and, and not have Hopefully nothing ever happened to me. But, you know, it still could. And I think this is why Massa Amini's death is such a profound national shock and turning point is she could have been anyone. There was nothing wrong with what she was wearing. I mean, there are women, I think I write it, um, you know, I think I've written about it. You know, there are parts of the city where girls wear bare midriffs. You know, they have navel rings. She was completely covered and she died. So... You know, I think that's what's shaking about it, that I think any woman, any mother from whatever religious background, from whatever uh, whatever type of family, and I think that's why so many religious families are with the protesters, that could have been anyone's daughter. I mean, the morality police are still out there and still arresting people, although obviously not everyone because they can't, or have they, have they given up trying? They seem to have given up trying for now. Those white vans that rolled around haven't been visible. I certainly didn't see them when I was there. It seems as though now very much the the focus of of the state and the security forces are are these protests and also just detaining journalists and activists. So I think the the system is very much in 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 the mode of smothering these protests and morality policing is just would be a provocation too far when when their focus in front of them is simply ensuring that they've um, put this behind them. And, and I think that they thought that they had until, until yesterday, the 40th day, the mourning period of, of Massa's um, marking the 40th day after her death when we saw the biggest protests um, since, since the middle of September. Yeah, which is so that we're, we're recording this on the 27th of October. So, even though, so, that's, so yesterday, meaning the 26th. Um, and that, how important to the structures of the Islamic Republic is the compulsory hijab. I mean, is there a sense that those structures find it hard to survive without the morality policing and the, the imposing of these restrictions on women's appearance in public? Is that sort of fundamental to the way the regime works? Not at all, to my mind. And we've heard very senior figures in the political elite come out and say as much that there can be an Islamic Republic where... Women are left free to choose, and a sizable number of women will continue to cover their hair because in the end, Iran is a Muslim-majority country, and there will be, I don't know, perhaps a fifth of the population of, of women who will still cover their hair. Um, you know, I think it's, it's frightening for the system because it did 
sort of center its whole Islamization project around women's traditional role, women as homemaker, woman as um, sort of the central unit of the family. Um, and so in a way, to give up on the hijab or this mandatory dress code is to give up or to acknowledge the failure of the whole societal project of the revolution. You know, there is no... There has been no successful Islamization of society. Iran is the most secular society in the Middle East. It is probably the most secular Muslim-majority country in the world. Um, there is a lot of data that records that um, and shows that in different ways. Um, you know, you have yoga studios and small villages on the Iran-Iraq border. I mean, people's desire to be secular and liberal in their lifestyle, not even necessarily Western, but just cosmopolitan is just, it pervades daily life. Uh, and so to, uh, I think to back down on the hijab means accepting that the revolution secularized Iran. And I think that's a very humiliating thing for the authorities. Also, you know, they've spent a lot of resources and many years indoctrinating a core constituency that would perhaps find this just too dissonant. You know, they've been persuaded that they're better, they're more moral, they've been materially, this constituency has been materially supported through subsidies, they've been told that they're politically superior, they've been often given the impunity to, you know, harass other Iranians through morality policing, through the Besiege forces. Uh, so I think dealing with that is is part of the challenge. But I think there's, you know, there's uh, there's serious heavyweights in, in Iranian revolutionary life who think Iran would be stronger, the Islamic Republic would be stronger to do away with this, you know, become more in tune with how society actually lives and you will have a more stable country and you have senior figures who are saying this and that are actually saying it's quite un-Islamic to enforce morality in this way. You know, Turkey doesn't do this. There are many upstanding Muslim countries that don't do this, that it's actually quite hard line. It's more Saudi. It's more of a Wahhabi Salafi style of Islam to want to overly police the public sphere. So these are quite interesting debates that are happening among clerics, the theological elite in Iran. And in the end, I think if Iran moves to a system that is a more secular version of itself, you know, this would be the gateway to that, is the, the sort of dissolving of mandatory hijab. Before the 1979 revolution, right, it was, it was actually forbidden. Is that right? That the so Iran has gone through cycles of, 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 the, of the veil being forbidden, permitted, forbidden and permitted. Uh, so in, in the 30s, in 1936, Reza Shah, who was the first Pahlavi monarch, the father of, of the Shah who was uh, overthrown in 1979, he, as part of his modernization project, like Ataturk in Turkey, like uh, Bourguiba in Tunisia, these early 20th century reformers who thought that they could only modernize by making their forcibly enacting top-down secularization of society. So he, he outlawed the wearing of the veil in 1936. And that was really traumatic because 1936, you know, most Iranian women um, wore the veil when they left the house. They didn't sit in mixed company with men without the veil. Um, and so many women simply stopped leaving the house. Um, you know, my mother-in-law recounts women who went tiptoe sort of over rooftops to get to the public bath because they wouldn't appear in the street without their headscarves. So that was the sort of first kind of enactment of state policy through what women wear. And that sort of went its way when I think essentially the British forced uh, Reza Shah to abdicate in favor of his son um, three or four years later. And then it was quite extraordinary to, to, I mean, it is extraordinary to see the pictures, um, the, the monarch who did this. So he died in exile. And when they brought his body back to Tehran for burial, after he was deposed, these laws sort of gave away and women began covering in, in the street um, and in public as they wanted. 
And the streets of Tehran were lined with women in black chador waiting to see his body, to sort of see the procession. So, you know, even immediately within his own lifetime, society had sort of reverted to how it wanted to be. And then, and then in 1979 and in, in the late 1970s, again, as, as a sort of reaction to this, to the sort of top-down secularization of his son, the Shah, as well, and meant as a sort of articulation of many other grievances, women began to cover their hair. And that was a symbol of protest. It was, um, it was not a sort of preemptive acquiescence at all. Um, but the authorities after 1979, when they consolidated the revolution, then made this uh, wearing of the hijab mandatory, and there were protests even then. There was a movement against it even then. So there's sort of back and forth. The wearing or not wearing of the veil is something, you know, between an authoritarian ruler and a society sort of chafing against that is just sort of a strand through Iran's 20th century history, certainly, and, and right up until now. You write about the, the women's movement that grew in Iran in the early 2000s. And, and how important was the wearing of the veil or not? to that movement? For the feminist movement that grew in Iran and that really blossomed and burgeoned in the early 2000s, it was not the top priority, the wearing of the veil uh, at that time. It was one among many priorities, but it was the, the feminist movement of, of the 2000s was very... It was very perceptive in that I think it realized that to have any momentum, it needed a deep grassroots base. And in the 2000s, clothing was just simply not or pushing back against veiling as a, as a sort of cornerstone of the state's gender discrimination laws was, was not the highest priority. So the feminist movement went about sort of consciousness raising in a very traditional movement way. They would go door to door across the country, especially trying to speak to rural women, women in smaller towns, outside of urban areas, asking them whether they knew what would happen, for example, if their husband beat them. Did they know the laws around domestic violence? Did they know the laws around child custody? Should they get divorced? Sort of making women aware of all the very immediate and urgent ways that their lives could be endangered, that their well-being and, and the well-being of their children could be endangered by discriminatory family law. So really, those were their priorities, sort of dealing with discrimination in family law and criminal law uh, in, in the workplace and in terms of jobs. Um, I think their objective was to get a broad base of women on side so that they could ultimately seek legal reform through to the age of marriage, to inheritance, to so many of the things that, you know, if I, I got married in Iran and, and I was up against child custody laws that were very frightening. And when you sort of see all the ways in which your life could be devastated by things that are much more vital in a way um, than, than clothing and veiling, and that Maybe that's something more women have in common than a prioritization of of dress. That was the strategy of of that women's movement. And and now looking, you know, in in, in hindsight, it seems so peaceful and benign and practical. And the way that it was shut down by the state seems, um, you know, even even more sort of foolish in a way because sort of tolerating a movement like that. Um, would have would have certainly warded off the day when young women were were burning veils and and so radicalized, you know, I think and and that's been part of the story of the last twenty years, too, is that you know when Iran is isolated, when it's economically pauperized, uh, and there's no space for any internal politics, everyone gets shoved to the extremes, right? And so I think that's been, part of the strategy, too, of, of Western sanctions. I think uh, Secretary of State Pompeo sort of said as much, you know, let's starve them until they revolt sort of um, sort of strategy. So I think that backdrop is um, is relevant, too. The government, if it's right, likes to blame outside interference or exaggerate its role in the protest and the unrest. But even though they're exaggerating that, 
clearly external forces have played a part and have had had an influence. I mean, the US sanctions probably most of all, but also there was an attack on a shrine in Shiraz recently, which ISIS claimed responsibility for. These outside forces have certainly, or, you know, the forces that are Iran's opponents in the region, they've certainly been longtime advocates of isolating Iran, cutting Iran off financially so that its population is is starved and you know, would would hopefully revolt, um, sort of absent any real kind of security or, or engagement strategy in the region. You know, countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia have really pushed, and we saw that during the Trump administration. They pushed and, and advocated. I mean, they were against the nuclear agreement in the first place that was signed under President Obama. They um, agitated and pushed for Trump to withdraw from it and to reimpose sanctions. And, and the reimposition of those sanctions, when Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, uh, tanked the Iranian economy. I mean, the, the currency lost half of its value. We had 40% inflation year upon year since then. And then alongside that, fairly regular assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists on the street, the sort of campaign of destabilization at Iran's borders, funneling cash, weapons, inciting sectarian sentiment, and and maybe we can talk about those sectarian issues um, uh, as well in in a moment. But Clearly, all of that has been a longstanding agenda to deal with Iran by pauperizing it and destabilizing it so that it fragments potentially, like Syria, that it loses its ability to provide the economic welfare of its citizens, which it, it arguably you know, has been successful. Um, Iranians are, are materially far poorer um, and, and desperate today than they, they have been in, in generations. Um, and so, you know, it plays out in the media, too. Um, Saudi Arabia has supported and funded the establishment of satellite television channels that, that broadcast disinformation, that incite sectarian sentiment, that, that is now leading a sort of campaign against the Biden administration's diplomats who are dealing with the nuclear deal, which is essentially a disarmament deal. And so the, the way that these um, regional tensions, the sort of Cold War plays out, um, is very much over the head of, of these protests because the forces that are trying to destabilize Iran, rock Iran with violence, ensure that it's permanently isolated, that it can never have a functional economy again. You know, these were pre-existing agendas and now they've been sort of hitched onto the protesters. And, and I think there's a real danger that that they will seek to speak for them on their behalf um, and they will instrumentalize them for their own aims rather than, you know, allowing this to be an organic movement with whatever prospects it can manage to have on its own. Yeah, and clearly their interests don't align at all with the, the interests of, of the protesters or of the of Iranian people more generally. But none of that, of course, is to let the Iranian state off the hook and that the the response has been severe. I mean, you said in the piece that more than 200 people have been killed and the death toll has risen since we went to press. And that, that I mean, some of the worst episodes of state violence have been, I mean, the gathering in, in Masamini's hometown on the 40th, it was an important sort of symbolic day of mourning, the 40th day since her death, and that there were reports that they've fired tear gas and live rounds at the crowd. And another at the end of September, 66 people were killed after Friday prayers in Zahadan, which is the capital of Sistan and Baluchistan province. Um, and what those, something those places have in common, that one's in the north, one's in the southeast, but they're border areas where the victims were largely ethnic minorities. I mean, how much is the state directing its oppression in those border areas on ethnic minorities? That's a really important question, and I'm glad that you mentioned Zahedan because that's probably the single most violent incident in the whole protest movement so far. It seemed to have been the the sort of killings in Zahedan all in one day, I think uh, as many as 60 people, if, if not a bit more, also appeared to have been sparked by 
the local rape of a young girl, um, but everything sort of happening at the same time. You know, so many, so many sentiments inflamed, um, and and to have this particular occurrence at a time when you know everyone across the country uh, was so angry. They kind of swirled in together. What happened in in, in Zahedan? Um, it's probably worth mentioning the um, the accused rapist in in Zahedan is a police officer. Yes. The accounts of what happened there are are just grotesque. I mean, it you know the the report seemed to show that protesters were shot in the back. They were running away. Um, whatever happened in Zahedan was extremely brutal and and got deeply out of hand. You know, beyond the kind of policing that we've seen in other parts of the country around these protests. You know, opening fire on mourners at, at Masa Amini's funeral. You know, often the police use sort of pellet shot. But it has, you know, if they aim at the head or the neck, that has killed many people, dozens, uh, as you say. You know, others have been killed in, in other ways, but the brutality has been very sharp. I, I think, and, you know, people said this in, in, in Iran too to me, that it could still get a lot worse. The state could still sort of be far more brutal than it has been. Um, and I, I, it's a slightly sort of dark thing to say, but... In, in relative terms, I think we learn something from recognizing that it's slightly trying to hold back, even though clearly in Zahedan it wasn't able to. Uh, but to your question about, um, you know, how do Iranians in border areas, so areas where Iran's ethnic and religious minorities live, how do they experience um, state repression differently? How do they experience it particularly? Um, well, you know, the problems that Iran faces nationally are simply more acute there. Joblessness, unemployment, inflation. Um, these are areas that suffer from drought, for example, um, in, in the southwest of Iran. Um, there's drought. The border with Afghanistan is an area where there's a lot of instability because of drug smuggling across the border from Afghanistan. These are areas that because of, um, because of their topography, because of how they're impacted by climate change, because of how they have been neglected by the state, and I think that's, that's key. Um, the state has not invested in the way that it should have in these areas. Um, these provinces have often been denied having people of their own sort of origin as, as governors of those provinces. Um, that's a sort of longstanding problem that, that predates the revolution. You know, the Shah's government was, was the same. It tried to have a really strong central state because there's always been some separatist sentiment in, in all of these areas just historically. Um, so that's a, a sort of a long-running story in Iran. But of course now with the country just suffering so much more acutely in those places, um, the situation, people's well-being, people's security um, is, is much diminished. Their political disenfranchisement is perhaps felt much more acutely as well um, because it's layered with the state sort of trying to keep them pacified or unrepresented so that they don't pose any kind of separatist challenge. Um, longstanding issues around being able to use languages, Kurdish, Arabic in schools, of course. These are long-running problems um, that, that Iran's minorities have had with the state. Um, at the same time, you know, I think the incitement of separatist sentiment is supported from the outside um, by the Saudis, by others. The, the sort of inability of ISIS in its heyday of recruitment to be able to recruit Iranians, I think, was a big failure story for ISIS. And, and I think this is something to, to acknowledge. Um, ISIS spent a lot of money on propaganda, trying to incite Iranian Kurds, Iranian Baluch, Iranian Sunnis to join its movement. Um, and it failed. Very, very few Iranians joined. And that's perhaps because at the time that ISIS was trying to exploit sectarian grievances in countries like Iran, um, you know, things were relatively, it was a relatively better time. And in the end, you know, is it better to be a Kurd in Iran than Turkey? Yes. Um, you know, how many Kurds from Iran joined ISIS versus how many Kurds from Turkey? I mean, it's, you know, incomparable. Is it better to be a Sunni in Iran than a Shia in Bahrain? Definitely. Um, so, so the state has much to be held accountable for in its treatment of, of its minorities. Um, but the way that those dynamics have been politicized and exploited 
by outside forces, I think is also a reality. So to be truly kind of even-handed about what's happening around Iran's periphery, it's hard not to look at all of these factors together. Before we continue, a quick message from the New Books Network. Listeners and readers of the London Review of Books know how difficult it is to keep up with all the latest books. The New Books Network publishes over 80 interviews a week with authors and academics about their new books, and among their hosts is the LRB contributor Owen Bennett-Jones. You can find NBN interviews at newbooksnetwork.com or by searching New Books Network in your podcast app. With a library of more than 15,000 interviews in over 120 subjects, New Books Network is one of the most valuable resources on the internet. You mentioned earlier the uncertainty about what happens when um, the Supreme Leader Khamenei dies. And how does that compare to 1989 when when his predecessor, when Ayatollah Khomeini died, which and he was the leader of the revolution, the founder of the state, that, and also that just, I suppose, geopolitically at that point, you know, in 1989, when so much was changing. Is this, I mean, is the next moment of transition in Iran more uncertain for the state than that was? It's a really insightful question. And there are actually many parallels, both in how Ayatollah Khamenei has, like Ayatollah Khomeini before him, purged so many from his inner circle. You know, Khomeini disinherited his successor, who was meant to succeed him as, as supreme leader. Um, he basically went about systematically eliminating his key rivals, either rivals because of political charisma or clout or theological credentials. And he ended up with a very, very small circle around him. And he chose as his successor, or he handed off succession at a time of of great domestic and international upheaval. So Iran had just concluded the eight-year war with Iraq. The country was devastated economically. I mean, it was physically in rubble, much of it, or many parts of it. And it was, you know, on the the eve of of the end of the Cold War. Um, So in many ways, we find ourselves now uh, with a a political sort of milieu under Ayatollah Khamenei, where he he has similarly purged or eliminated all of his rivals. You know, politics in Iran, the circle of the elite has shrunk, 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 shrunk. I mean, there's no opposition in politics. There's no reformists. Um, And even sort of senior figures loyal to the Islamic Republic, part of the sort of aristocracy of the Islamic Republic, have been eliminated. And there are whispers that Ayatollah Khamenei wants to hand over power to his son, which is something that he has said forever, that, you know, Iran is not a monarchy. We don't behave like kings. We don't, you know, hand power over. Uh, and, and this is something that uh, would, be, uh, would be seen as, you know, outrageous by, by the majority of Iranians and also something that the political elite, the Ayatollah Khamenei, has, um, has pushed out of influence would, would not accept this, would not accept this either. Uh, and we're at a time of, again, great global upheaval, the war in Ukraine that Iran has quite catastrophically, I would say, waded into, sort of perhaps oblivious to the consequences. It's now seen as a belligerent alongside the Russians through the provision of drones, um, you know, at a time when the policy, the Iranian policy of, of neither east nor west, but looking more to the east at a time when the west seeks to decouple from China. You know, there's so many parallels in these moments of succession between um, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei today. And I think both um, at both moments, Iran was left weaker, uh, politically divided, and, you know, arguably just entirely unstable. So, you know, where will it go? I don't know. I mean, you mentioned earlier that the, the process is still quite small, and it won't really make a difference or seriously threaten the status quo until they get bigger. I mean, are there, is that likely or possible? I mean, is, that they might expand to more protesters or that people might go on strike? 
Certainly, they're possible. And if it were to happen, it would transform everything. That would be a sort of step change in, in the protests up until now. Um, on the 40th day of Masa Amini's death, when the mourners gathered in her hometown of Saqez, we saw that the Grand Bazaar of Tehran was closed for the day, which is which is really significant. And there was a strike of, of doctors who were protesting the security forces using ambulances and hospitals to, to ferry around police forces and to treat wounded riot police. But we haven't seen mass general strikes in, in key sectors yet. I think many, certainly in, in the diaspora, are, are hoping to see that. Um, there, are some, there have been some images uh, on social media of oil workers protesting, um, but these seem to be contract workers. These are not the permanent staff of, of the oil refineries. You know, workers in Iran living in the precarious economic situation that they are in now, I think they really need to know that they're risking their lives uh, and their livelihoods for something very tangible. You know, does the protest movement have an economic agenda? Would it end corruption? Would it redistribute wealth? Is there a vision or even an articulation that they offer, um, that they're even thinking about workers' demands uh, and and things that would make a difference in the lives of um, of workers and in the sort of world of of, of labor. Um, we don't see that yet. And so the the possibility of mass general strikes, you know, although nostalgic because that's part of what, you know, brought down the Shah's regime in 1979, um, is, is not something that can just be wished into existence. Um, there's uh, some really strong uh, academics, Iranian academics, who work on labor history. There's one um, based in, in the U.S., Paymon Jaffari. He's written um, on this. And, and I think uh, it's important to look at the, the possibility for mass strikes because without that, um, you know, without that kind of slowdown um, and the extension of these protests into, um, into labor strikes, uh, the growth of this protest movement seems quite limited, and understanding maybe why that's not happening is, I think, is quite illuminating. I mean, what would the, I mean, I know we can't say what will happen, but what would the, the best case scenario, I mean, a plausible best case scenario be? A plausible best case scenario. A plausible best case scenario would be senior figures in the Islamic Republic reckoning that for the preservation of the core of the system, perhaps not in its sort of entirety the way that it looks now, but the preservation of of the basic sort of fundamentals of some kind of Islamic governance, that the state needs to concede openly, that it needs to bear some accountability for something. You know, impunity has has been the way that the state has conducted itself. Um, total impunity, taking no responsibility for almost anything. The death of Masa Amini, the downing of that Ukrainian civilian airliner in 2020. Um, it's broken. It's it's broken down so much trust between Iranians uh, and the state that when. There seems to be what appears for all intents and purposes to be an ISIS attack in the middle of Iran, an attack for which, you know, ISIS has itself claimed responsibility. People are entirely doubtful. They think that it's the the state itself distracting attention from the protests. Um, So a, a scenario in which it took some accountability for the failure of morality policing, a bold move where it were to, you know, formally dissolve Uh, dress codes and not see that as an expression of weakness. Um, You know, you asked for plausible, but but these are things that that I think um, the Supreme Leader would, it's just not in his temperament or his playbook to ever do any of these things. But I think there are forces in Iran who would. So, you know, will they come to the fore? Yeah. And at some point, I mean, he's 83, he's said to be ill. If we assume sort of looking ahead, he dies, he is succeeded by someone more reasonable, I don't know, that that, these things would then be possible. If he's succeeded by someone more reasonable or if the system of the sort of clerical jurisprudence is dissolved and there's um, a system that is 
somehow economically more open to the world. Um, you know, I think I truly believe that authoritarianism in Iran is sustained by isolation and, you know, breaking that isolation. And it's hard to know how to do that because so much of Western pressure is is punitive sanctions and you know the west had just lost so much leverage over iran by just simply punishing it punishing it punishing it over the years and you've ended up with such a closed isolated system where the possibility for internal change is so squelched so to reverse that to sort of allow iran back into the world's economy to allow people to travel and to earn money and to be able to live lives that would enable them to engage politically in a meaningful way, I think that would be transformative. But that seems to not be at all where the geopolitics are, certainly in the region and, and with the West. So breaking the isolation um, and, and now with the protests sort of seeming with the protests sort of pushing Western governments to show Iran that, you know, there can be no business as usual, as the Germans said yesterday when they announced um, many more sanctions and punitive measures. Well, um, business as usual with Iran was, you know, punitive and isolationist. So it's not as though Iran is really losing anything. Um, Iran has been put into a very, very small suffocating box. Um, and it's behaving like a country that does um, when it's, when it's, feels constantly on the defensive so but more isolation i mean that, that that kind of pressure from germany that's not i mean that's another example of an outside force assuming or presuming to be on the side of the protesters but actually not that's not actually helping exactly i mean calibrating a response to iran or a way of dealing with iran that doesn't punish ordinary people i mean it's it's actually very very difficult to impose sanctions in a way that are not punitive um, to ordinary people. I mean, they end up always being um, a very blunt instrument of collective punishment. I mean, I think we all, probably we do, uh, recall the oil for food era under Saddam Hussein in Iraq, when the Iraqi middle class was essentially destroyed um, under a sanctions regime that was meant to have all sorts of humanitarian exemptions. And, you know, there's a whole generation of sanctions technocrats who, who you know, tell us that they have built in mechanisms and exemptions and ways to, to protect people. Um, but in the end, um, you know, these overarching economic tools um, are meant to collectively harm society. And that does inhibit people's ability to protest meaningfully. It leads to very often extremes uh, of, of protest. I don't know. I think Iran's development has politically been stunted for many decades now, partly because of the behavior of the Iranian government and the state and partly because of the behavior of the West, which has sort of thrown its law in with Arab autocrats and Israel. Um, and we see a, a Middle East that is, you know, overwhelmingly, um, you know, full of failed states and civil wars and, you know, the only stable countries are, are deeply repressive ones, and those are sort of Western partners and allies. Um, so the cost of isolating Iran um, does not seem to have yielded a, a better region. Azadeh thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read Azadeh's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Jenny Turner on Stuart Hall, Owen Hathley on Birmingham, and Catherine Rundle on Hummingbirds. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt.